I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Welcome to Face to Face. Our next interview today is with Eric Kim. He's a Canadian, Korean, or Korean-Canadian. I'm sure he'll have an opinion about that in a few minutes uh, uh, to tell us a little bit more. He's here today to tell us a little bit more about what he does, who he is, and what he's up to. I'm currently looking at uh, the complete plays of William Shakespeare for, for the listeners who can't <laughs> see over my shoulder. Uh, the book is all of about 40, 85 pages, and each play... Uh, gets two pages, uh, the complete plays of William Shakespeare as adapted by Eric Kim. Eric, um, before we even get into it, what uh, there seems to me to be an awful lot of arrogance behind this idea that you can yeah. take on the complete works of William Shakespeare in 84 pages and, and, and do it in a comic book setting. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. It's awesome, uh, by the way. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I think that at the time I was coming at it, from a, from a place of complete frustration with my own writing. And so uh, I sort of, I soothe my, my ego by thinking to myself, well, Shakespeare must have had bad days. Maybe, you know, maybe Shakespeare was a struggling writer and this is why he, he turned out so much work. Uh, and it also came about because uh, I had been joking around with friends of mine hmm. about, uh, about distilling Hamlet into, I think into two panels. And this was, I can't remember how it came about, but we were talking about Hamlet uh, being distilled down into into two panels, and I right done it. Hamlet, the four and a half hour movie that Kenneth exactly. Branagh did a few years ago, right? And uh, and so I just shrank it down, and 
it was like, oh, everyone's alive. It's a, uh, or no, it was a, uh, it started off with Hamlet talking with his father. And it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. And then his father comes out and says, you know, should rectify this. And at the end, I just come up with everyone being dead. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah. And everyone going like, oh, what happened? Pretty much everyone does die in hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Except for, I think it's Horatio. No, I can't remember. I can't remember. No. Well, you're the one who did the complete works on No <laughs> the complete plays. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been a if while. Know, yeah. Whoa, this was so, terrible. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it, as I know our listeners will as well. Um, thanks for having er- me, Rick. Er- Eric's a, a, an artist. He's a writer. He's a... Uh, I hope this doesn't sound um, uh, a negative at all, but I think a generalist actually sort yeah. of in some ways when it comes to uh, media and film and animation. And we've just uh, had a wonderful so. breakfast together, kind of getting to know each other a little bit as we prepared to, to do our interview together. And um, mm-hmm. young guy living in the annex here in the heart of uh, Toronto. And uh, we are on this uh, warm August uh, morning going to chat a little bit more about why you do what you do. So, yeah. so, 35 years ago, uh, no one knows who I am or, or sorry, yeah. how old I am, but uh, 47, I probably walked into the Dragon Lady comic book shop oh, wow. on Queen Street, uh, Queen Street, not far at that time from the Silver Snail and yeah. then Baca. Yep. Baca, Baca was on there. Baca, Baca was, was fantastic. There. So or it's is been a fantastic while. rather. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a while since I've walked that street. Uh, huge memories for me of oh, saving yeah. up my money and, you know, Spider-Man and certain issues and then Wolverine and, and the list goes on. Oh yeah. How, how has the industry changed since then? I mean, we chatted briefly oh, about the God. dragon lady no longer being there, which is kind of a shame Yeah. Uh, from, from, from a whole lot of perspectives, but uh, you, you, Oh, by the way, you're, you're, I mean, you seem to be living in the hub right now. Oh yeah. Comic book central in Toronto. Oh my God. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit more about the industry and, 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 and what's going on with it. Well, I mean, do you, like just locally, I mean, obviously the shift of comics, I think is focused or the focus of comics has shifted away from queen street over to, uh, the annex, I think, um, because like, uh, the Beguiling and, of course, their efforts uh, developing TCAF and curating, you know, wonderful shows. Uh, also, over at Young and Dundas, where the Silver Snail is now, uh, they've been doing, uh, I think they've been doing really well over there. Uh, and everyone's just sort of, like, moved away from uh, from Queen Street. The, the Dragon Lady has transformed itself into the comic book lounge. Hmm. Um, and in terms of publishing, it's moved away from the specialty shops, which used to have everything. Uh, when they still do and you know their knowledge base is fantastic their sales staff all incredibly you know well learned very comprehensive for all three stores um but i think that also uh it's all a lot of the focus has shifted to being online you know a lot of a lot of artists are now starting to get their work seen online uh their exposure to work is online uh, a greater diversity of work exists uh, online. I mean, there's not enough that could be said about being, you know, on the internet and being seen that way. It used to be that uh, the specialty stores like uh, the Dragon Lady and Silver Snail and uh, the Beguiling would carry your independent comics and zines. Right, right. And that would be how people would break in. Right, buy 50 copies or yeah, exactly. whatever. Yeah. yeah, and that's enough encouragement too. I mean, you know, I think that in a way you have, uh, you're more beholden to uh, to your readers when it's in print, you know, the idea of print legitimizing the work, I think it's still pretty fair today. Um, whereas with the uh, web comics and uh, online social media, I think everyone's very focused on numbers, numbers, numbers. Like how many how many Twitter followers you yeah. have, that kind of, how many yeah how many exactly. downloads you've had, that kind of thing. Yeah, how many friends you've attained and how yeah. many hits yeah. you've gotten. Yeah, fourteen thousand two hundred sixty nine of my closest friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like this post. Yes, and That's it's right. it's, <laughs> it's very it can be very uh, uh, very. I don't know, it, unless you understand how to perceive the stats properly, it can be really misleading as to what it is that you're actually seeing. So uh, there's a lot of like uh, trying to figure out what it is that you're actually doing, what you're actually seeing. And, you know, it's a very different. Is it more important for you today to publish a book online, would you say? Or are you still kind of old hmm. school enough to say, I I mean, I'm sitting here uh, looking at a, two, a copy of The Complete Plays of William oh, yeah. Shakespeare by Eric and and a, a series of books, Love is a Foreign Language, which I'm hoping we're going to get to chat about a little more. I mean, oh, these yeah. are real books. These are, when I say real books, they're tangible. They're printed oh, yeah. on newsprint, etc. Does that excite you more than, say, uh, publishing something in a PDF? Yeah, it does, actually, because like uh, I'm, when I design a book, I think a lot about the spreads, how it will read, 
in a, like in a, right. in a book form. And so when I'm thinking about a, an online webcomic, everything's designed to be a, a single page. So just from a pure design interactive experience, there's, there's so many things to consider about how the reader will be taking in the work, you know, and it, it changes Con context, yeah. framing, et cetera. So the when you say a webcomic, yeah. a webcomic is one page, does that mean like the whole story has to sort of happen there in front of you on that one page? Some people go for the strip format where it's all like just a single contained story, you know, like one comic strip, like a, almost like a newspaper strip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, a, like the jokes you would see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Four panels and you know, there's the gag. Right. Uh, other people go for like a, a continuous story but they still have to design their pages so that you read one page then the next page and then the next page and you click on it to go through. With some of the things that I do uh, in the comic book, I use the spread, uh, like both pages being open at the same time in order to get the message across of this is so vast or this is so large or this moment is you know, right, really right. exciting. And a lot of that book design is in a way lost, I think, with the web comics, but with the web comics, what they do is they just format the pages differently. Um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of web comics where the length of the strip. Uh, I'm using a visual demonstration, but like sometimes the strips are really long, and uh, and that's how they attain their sense of greatness or right, you know, importance. Right. right. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think the story changes? Because I mean, I, I know as a kid, mm -hmm. and I'm. I guess maybe I'm a uh, well, maybe more of an old fart than you are in the sense that mm -hmm. um, the smell of the comic, the newsprint, oh, the yeah. advertisements for the Charles Atlas book, and now I'm really dating myself. You yeah. know, at the back or the oh, magic yeah. tricks. I'm there too. You know, yeah. All those things were just. I don't know. There was something about it for me as a kid. Now maybe it's just different today. It's a it's just a different experience. I don't mm -hmm. want to say one's better than the other, but there seems to me to be something that's potentially lost I think so. in translation there, you know? There's a much more fuller reading experience, I think, when you have like the smell of the pages, like just the, the yellowing of them, like the texture, the uh, the advertisements, everything. You're right. I mean, it really it really puts you in a, in a particular place in time, you know, and says to the reader, you know, this is where you are. When I read old comics from the 70s and 80s or the 60s, and, you know, I see like the hypnotic glasses or like, you mm -hmm. know, uh, <laughs> right. it's just amazing. The x-ray glasses. Oh, yeah. Hysterical. <laughs> see through your hand. That's right. Yeah. I mean, those are fantastic because, you know, you sort of get the sense of like, oh, this is, you know, this is what things were like back then. You know, this is, you know, things were happening on Lafayette Boulevard over in, you know, over in New York, New York. Um, this is where I'd be sending all my stuff. And some of those things are just so, they're so goofy. I've, I've done magic for 38 years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, practicing magician. Uh, that's magician, not musician. And <laughs> and um, a common mistake in pronunciation. And my first magic tricks yeah. were a little finger chopper and this thing called Mystic Smoke. Oh, yeah. That came, oh, sorry, and a little coin slide that you vanished a nickel in, which I'm sure you can find in any joke shop yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, or even Toys R Us you yeah. know, on the checkout line. But that's where I got my first three magic tricks. I was about eight years old. Yeah, yeah. I remember the, the, the deal of sending away for that. Now, I guess kids do that today. Uh, we do that today through Amazon. And yeah. your books are available online. And you can order downloads of your PDFs, I would imagine. And Yeah, it's, and, a, uh, it's a bit of a different world nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think that we're... There's another fun thing about, like, just waiting. The anticipation of, like, oh. having... Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, you know... Waiting for the next issue? Oh, waiting for the next issue or waiting for like a thing to come in the mail or, you yes, know, and all yes. the rest. And now it's like, everything's pretty much just like overnight delivery, you know, get into your hands, instantaneous gratification. But in a way it's really, it's really frustrating, uh, trying to keep up with, with these, uh, how, how has it changed the way, um, you do, you practice your craft? How has it changed mm -hmm. the way that you write and draw and publish? I mean, obviously there's some mechanical things from a, you know, get an online perspective, you got to yeah. upload it, et cetera. But, but has it, it must, yeah. Ha, I, has it shifted the way you tell stories? I have this, I have this bad habit of basically, um, starting large endeavors and then backing off, uh, immediately. So I learned in this sort of backwards kind of fashion, um, of doing it and then suddenly recanting and then analyzing what I did wrong and then going back and doing it again. So I started off uh, making a web Which I bet in some way, Eric, makes you really good at what you do. <laughs> right? Definitely. There's a certain... More seasoned. You know, I, I was kidding about the arrogance and taking on no, no. Shakespeare, but there's a certain pride and... Um, um, 
I think you do. You know, in, in, in being an artist, I think. Oh, yeah. But there's also this sense of stepping back and going, okay, maybe it's not quite right yet. Yeah. So there's this tension Absolutely. between, uh, it seems to me, between the two two things. What's funny about comics is that they sort of live at this intersection of art and commerce. Um, huh. and Interesting. So what you end up doing, especially for Shakespeare, is that I, I thought it was a fun concept and I did it. Um, and I was encouraged all along because I lost heart about halfway through but I still finished the project and, you know, artistically, I think it's, I think it says a lot, a lot about where I was at the time, a lot about, uh, how I look at Shakespeare. And unfortunately it's not the same as how I see it today. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more respect for Shakespeare. I, um, can, I, can imagine. <laughs> I don't know anyone I think that's read the complete works, but oh, yeah. uh, oh, I've known a couple They they find me after hearing about this book. Uh, and then they're like, oh, well, you know, I've read the complete works of Shakespeare and you got it dead on. And that's really great. Uh, but uh, when I look at the, I get disappointed by the business side of it because I think it could have gone further. And so from every experience, I end up learning a lot more and I'm, I'm stubborn enough where the only way I'll learn is just through experience, you know, just, you know, by doing it and then learn from it and then, you know, have to keep doing it in order to, you know, do it again. So for how online I think shapes how I work when I, I made an online comic uh, a while back, and I got such stinging comments that I didn't want to go back to doing it at all because uh, I was so upset. Uh, and so it actually taught me a couple of things, which is one, I can't listen at all to what anybody says to me online. I'll just have to do what I'm doing and just you know hope that I can match up to what I wanted to see. Right. The second right. thing is I have to make sure that I'm the audience that I'm writing for, not people that I want to make happy. I can't. Right. Right. Yeah. I absolutely can't live to please others. It drives me mental. Uh, and three is that basically um, I can't live for the instantaneous gratification in a way. Like the the best part about the internet is probably also the worst part in a way in that there's this instantaneous gratification you get when you post a new page or a new blog post or, you know, photos from Instagram or whatever. But you can't live for those moments because just as quickly they go away. And people forget what you've done and they attach no significance to it. So the only thing that I think lasts with people is when you do create a project that has lasting significance, you make a book or you make a story or you make a, you make a, a strong stance, you know, uh, those things last with people. And that's the only thing you can really, you know, hope for that you just follow through on a project that you really care about. And I think that helps you know, lower the volume on commenters that, you know, troll pages and are like, oh, this well, sucks. I mean, it's, it's, al- yeah, exactly. It's almost mm-hmm. become a, 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 a trite comment to say people are, are angry on the internet or people are unfriendly <laughs> on, on blogs. And I, I just, I'm astounded by some of the stuff that I have read yeah. on articles that have been written or people who have taken positions on certain issues and, yeah. and just the, the, the poison. Yeah. That, that comes out through the fingertips. It's just, it's, 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 it's troubling. It's the, it's the anonymity, I think, of the internet. Yeah. There's been a lot of discussions about it. Yeah, I'm sure there has. Yeah. 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 So tell me a bit about this. So, so lasting significance. Oh, yeah. Hey, Eric, you, you, you're a comic <laughs> artist. What I know. are you talking about? No, but I mean that seriously because you and I had just had a conversation about this idea. What is, you know, what is art? And, and, oh, and yeah. you know, it's got to be, uh, I think uh, a, a conversation, an internal conversation that every artist is having. What you know, what is of lasting significance that I'm doing? How is it inspiring people to do other things? How is it creating any kind of social change and so on? Which is sort of the yeah. world that I live in. Love to hear what you have to say with that. Again, I, I'm joking with you <laughs> about the whole. I, I actually yeah. do believe, uh, you know, and I, this is where I want to come back to, you know, in a few minutes or come back to. But I want to talk about love as a foreign language. Yeah, in absolutely. A few but um, yeah, so tell me more about art. Your own struggles with it, and, and and how you think you're making a difference. I used to have this, uh, like I was, like we were talking about before. I used to have this real problem with uh, with art because I thought it had zero significance to it, and you know, I, I would just get really depressed uh, working at home on my own, and you know, trying to figure out what it was that I was doing and how it was important in any way, shape, or form. And then I realized that it just sort of embodies a lot of a lot of ideals that, if we don't have today, are worth striving for tomorrow, and if. Uh, if they are realized today, then to sort of say this is where we were, you know, and this is who we are. Uh, and I think those are those are good things to record. Those are good things to sort of leave as uh, historical landmarks, I guess, for, for the next generation. Um, love is a foreign language is a story. And this is Jay's story, of course, uh, like Jay Torres. 
uh, Love is a Foreign Language is a story about a guy that goes uh, overseas to Korea and he finds that he hates it there. Um, and then he falls in love with the secretary there, Hannah. And uh, the story of them coming together, of them overcoming these cultural obstacles in order to, you know, finally sort of meet each other. And it's mostly just Joel actually overcoming his own, hmm. uh, his own problems with the culture. And finally being able to talk with Hannah, uh, the secretary. Uh, that story, it's a good story, you know, and it's, it's fun and it's, you know, it's sweet. Um, and these are things that uh, are good to discuss at the very least. There's, a, I got to, I got to interject. There's a beautiful. We may, maybe we'll end up chatting about it more now mm-hmm. than than uh, later. But on mm-hmm. uh, a review of Love Is a Foreign Language by Jonathan Ellis, uh, opening line is, "Quote: Love Is a Foreign Language is an ongoing graphic novel series that presents the ideal that the heart needs no translator." It's mm-hmm. so amazing. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. A comedic romance that also comments on a clash of two cultures. Close quote. I mean. Uh, right out of the gate, it appeals to me as a international development guy. It appeals to me as a philosopher, etc. Yeah. But this idea of the heart needing no translator—I mean, I immediately thought of Pascal, and you know, the heart has its reasons that the head cannot know. Oh, so absolutely. that there's this whole other language. It's beautiful. It's it amazing. Is. So, so to me, uh, I haven't even read them yet, and I'm already inspired. You know, on some <laughs> level. So, so you talked earlier about art being inspirational uh, yeah. offline. Uh, tell me, tell me more about that. I think. <laughs> In love, in love is a foreign language specifically because uh, because it, ta- it deals with romance and you know it deals with love. Um, the ideal here is that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't give up on love. You should you know you should go for it. Um, and the heart wants what it wants, and you know, and that with some feelings you can you can just communicate these ideas without having to you know get too much into the details um, like the language or the cultural the cultural discrepancies. Um, what I love about it is hmm. philosophically it speaks to the notion that you don't need to be explicit about knowledge knowledge is not necessarily quantifiable oh, yeah. knowledge is not necessarily logic it's not about numbers it's not about lines and boxes and graphs <laughs> and I you know it's about something intangible yeah like love yeah and you can have there is there are other kinds of knowing that are valid and as an artist you oh, must wow. You must reflect on that. I think there's absolutely. I think there's a lot of things that are just. When it comes to art, I think there are a lot of a lot of truths that are self-evident. They're intuitive. You know, you know them to be true, even if you can't explain them. And God knows, I have the worst time trying to articulate my thoughts, Um, especially because I'm an artist. I don't know. Most of the writers I've met are brilliant at articulating their abstract thoughts, but I'm so miserable at it. Um, At, I think that. When you come across these things, when you come across these truths and you're able to um, at least get them out to a larger audience, you know, the feeling there is is really nice. Everyone knows the, uh, the truth behind it, you know, everyone knows. There's something that resonates. Absolutely. How do you get things out to a larger audience now? So tell me, tell me, you know, you're, you're largely not all self-published, yeah. but you're, you, you're speaking more, it seems, to self-publishing and you certainly seem to be a, a yeah. proponent of it. You know, what, what, what can uh, the new comic book artist, writer <laughs> uh, learn from what you've already done? I think that the, uh, the comic artist today has to be more of a generalist than he ever has been hmm. or she ever has been. Um, and that means uh, you have to be proficient at, you know, the business end. You have to be proficient at the art. You have to be proficient at the writing. You have to have your intent and your ideas clear. You have to understand how to market and everything. Uh, the internet makes things uh, the best time ever for for artists to be able to do everything themselves and to maintain their creative vision and all the rest. Uh, and so this is this is a pretty amazing time. It's actually kind of uh, kind of a weird coincidence because I just. I finished up working on a, a book for Oni Press called Billy Smoke um, that'll hopefully uh, hopefully we'll see publication you know sometime sometime soon in 2013 tail end of 2013 or 2014 we'll see how it goes um, but yeah I, I'm still focused very much on like trying to be able to do everything all in house on you know on my own or you know as an all in one so I guess um, I'm sorry I, I forgot the question. <laughs> well, no, you are. You well. What's interesting is you're actually answering it as you go. But this whole idea of self-publishing and, oh, yeah. and what are some of the things that you know you've learned? But uh, what are some of the things that you could talk about for younger 
comic book artists, oh, yeah. younger younger writers who are trying to self-publish. I mean, I'm I'm kind of in the middle of it myself with mm -hmm. a collection of essays, and you know, there's all these sort of what I would call vanity publishing houses popping up yeah. that will, for X amount of dollars, publish your book, and they're making money off you because you want to get your book out there. Yeah. And so, I mean, the whole industry has changed. It does change. It continues to change daily. It seems so. Uh, you know, how how do you get your book out in the street? What I find uh, really funny is that publishers want uh, people that are very savvy with their social media. Um, they want authors that have a lot of Twitter followers or have Facebook pages or that have lots of fans and all the rest. People that have established themselves already so that they're not strangers to the, to the reading audience. Right. So there's that aspect. So when it comes to people making their own books, they just simply have to do it and then just hope that their message finds a larger audience. And it's funny too, because it used to be that like, I used to think that an author or a creator only had to make one book and then just really sell the hell out of it. So right. you were looking at a period of time that, you know, basically you could, you had to basically do this for about two years. But now as I go on, I'm starting to realize that you actually have to have like a series of five books. Wow. Where you have to think in terms of the long term. You have body to think, of body of work. Yeah. An established body of work. You got to be established. Absolutely. And just establish to your fans. You don't really have to establish yourselves uh, to to anybody else people will find you uh and that's the best part about readers is that they will communicate to other people you know and you know and endorse the work and be like you know this is what uh this is what i like you should really read this person and cory doctorow had you know i think he had at least two books um that were freely available to people that people just passed around and he he you know developed his readership that way you know and then publishers were like well you know we'd love to publish your work and Cory Doctorow uh, maintained that he still wanted the books to be freely available, and the publishers were fine with that, hmm. you know, and so they still published the work regardless. So it doesn't really matter if the work is out there, I think. If, if people love it, they will, you know, they'll come and buy it, like Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, right. <laughs> that book. But, you know, um, I think when it comes to artists and uh, writers and, you know, anybody looking to publish, they should just do it and then slowly develop uh, the marketing and like once they do it they have to talk about it and get it out there in front of right, people right you know and develop i think develop more criticism uh more critical reviews more responses you know so why comics i mean i know they resonated with me i loved i i mean i think i mentioned to you earlier that the storylines uh were yeah. more important to me than the, the art was more important to me than the collecting and all, although there was this really interesting relationship of mm -hmm. having the magazine the comic well i guess they're called magazines maybe oh, today, yeah. but they were com comic books and the smell and all that you know going through them before i'd go to bed and oh yeah that's right i need issue 63 of peter parker the spectacular spider-man yeah i can't afford it yet because some special <laughs> artist did the cover damn it and yeah it pushed the price up to 15 dollars instead of that five that i could probably afford i remember a guy that i knew had three papers he had the star of the globe and the toronto sun all the three biggies <laughs> and i had the etobicoke guardian <laughs> and i was making no kidding 12 to 18 dollars a month yeah and he was probably making 20 or 30 bucks a week because, right. but he was also giving up at five o'clock every single morning to deliver these you should have seen his comic book collection oh yeah so i remember what it was for me but i didn't you know i didn't turn into i'm, I'm probably a crummy <laughs> artist what what was it that pulled you in um, when I was a kid, this, this sounds ridiculous. Um, when I was a kid, my parents had a variety store and, uh, mm. and so what they would do to encourage me to read, uh, was they would let me choose a comic book from, uh, from the weekly comics that would come in. Um, and I was always every, every Tuesday I would pick up the comics from the newsstand. And so I had a collection of comics that was like ridiculous. It, it spanned like, I think my entire basement uh, the basement walls and they were filled with comics from DC and Marvel and Archie and everything. And now that collection has sort of, you know, been strewn to the winds over time, but it's, it, what started me into becoming a fan of comics. And then from there, hang, hang on, are you a DC or a Marvel guy? I'm a Marvel guy. Yeah, me too. I don't know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I don't even know what it is, but I know there's very few DC properties that are, uh, that are worthwhile. It seems to me, but anyway, that's a whole other yeah. story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My brief comment is that, like, uh, I really love DC comics from the 20s and 30s, and uh, and earlier on, I really love Marvel comics from the 80s and on. Huh. So that's that's my specific time period. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think like uh, I was drawn to comics from an early age, and you know, it was just going to be part of who I was. And then um, 
what I really found was that over time, my reading habits changed, as, you know, as people's do. You know, so you go from comics and you start reading books and you start reading, you know. Yep, sure. When it came to me being a teenager, I started resonating with comics again because the comics that were coming out at the time were like Tank Girl and The Crow and, uh, right, and right. a bunch of other books that were really counterculture that were outspoken. Right. And I think it was that outspokenness that I was attracted to. I, would, I was attracted to the idea of rebellion and like, you know, being able to have like some sort of revolution. Um, so insurgent tendencies, I guess, when, you, when you're a teen. And then uh, as I grew older, you know, the work became more mature and then I started getting into books by Chris Ware um, and the Brothers Nandes, like gone to the Brothers Nandes, I guess, when I was 24. Um, and just enjoying the idea and the concept of like, of comics being able to tell more mature and more thoughtful stories. So was there something about it that as you grew older that became a little more subversive? Do I you think, think? I think comics are just by nature subversive because kind of almost almost rock and roll like yeah. in a way. Yeah, they really are. They're they're the rock and roll, I guess, of, of literature. And it makes sense to me because like, you know, they're cheap disposable pieces of of literature. Yeah. Uh, and they're not meant to stick around, so you can pretty much say whatever you want. You can be shouting into the wind, you know. But that's kind of the brilliance of comics too, because you can you have this sort of freedom to do what you want, you know. And the expectations are so low, you know. When you when you say something brilliant, I guess people really stand up and notice. Do you remember um, Skateboarder magazine? Yeah, yeah, Thrasher. Oh yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Thrasher. I so I skateboarded. Uh, I was nuts. Oh yeah, I've got three or four broken bones and several concussions to oh, prove wow. it. Uh, started when I was about fourteen, and then probably went through about a five-year period. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, it was big. Then it went away yeah. for a couple of years completely. Yeah. All the parks in Toronto closed, oh, yeah. and uh, then it came back. And Thrasher was kind of like, "Wow, Huge. I wonder if this magazine's going to make it because it was this newsprint thing." And mm -hmm. anyway, watching that shift as it came back in was really interesting because it was kind of like a comic book. Yeah, it's or at least it had. Did it? I mean, would you say it had manga like? Yeah, it's qualities so. sort of. Yeah, I think that like this idea of like, uh, like. Like mega like qualities compared to like Thrasher magazine or like well, yeah like uh, or like uh, like like old comic books for oh, instance yeah. you know Absolutely. like the eighties comics you know yeah I think that like um, you can probably like draw parallels between like skater culture from the eighties and like comics from uh, comics from then and then also just sort of see the rise of them you know and it's funny too because ga uh, video games had the same sort mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. renaissance mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. basically just like uh, I think people just the people that grow up with like with skateboarder magazines, with video games, uh, with comics, I mean, you know, they're in like their thirties and, and what now, and they've become basically the stewards of society, I guess, you know? And so they bring along what they love. And right. I think that's really good that they can reintroduce that to new generations, you know, and sort of like pass this down. as like, this is part of your heritage. This is your, you know, this is your cultural legacy here, you know, skateboard magazines and Pac-Man. Right. <laughs> That's not a terrible thing, I think. It's a lot of fun. How old was the guy who invented Pac-Man? Oh was 16, wasn't he, or something? He was very Oof. young. Yeah, I think so. Crazy, crazy. I remember I read an article recently about Pac-Man and the yeah. money involved and, oh, yeah. and how many times the game is supposedly been played. I mean, it's just it's insane. All right, so can you settle something for me? Sure. Um, are are the Matrix and Hunger Games just cheap South Korean ripoffs, or Canadian-American <laughs> ripoffs from South Korean writers? Uh, or Korean writers or Asian writers. I can't speak to it. I mean, <laughs> I've heard this for so long, right? With the Matrix, I, I don't know. So listen, I'm yeah. walking my son to school, yeah. and this uh, film guy. Uh, we we often will walk back after our kids are on the bus, and yeah. he works at a local theater out in Oakville, and and so I make some comment about a friend of mine who's complaining about Hunger Games and Battle Royale. Yeah, and, yeah. and he's like, oh, you know, and he's got this really strong opinion, you know. <laughs> Complete comic nerd, right? This yeah. guy. Uh, but it was just interesting to me that you know some people are taking this pretty seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a there's a bit of cultural appropriation always at play. <laughs> yes, and that's just going to happen. I yeah, mean, like, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, no, like North American culture is pretty in a pretty privileged spot where we can you know grab everything and you know see it all uh, from all over the world. Um, and I'm sure that they do this over in Asia as well. Uh, in fact, they do actually. I can probably point some fingers. Uh, but when it comes to battle royale and uh, and like the Hunger Games specifically, I think that the focus is different. Uh, my friend Derek Halliday, who goes and sees every film, he's amazing and he's so brilliant at his at his critiques. Um, 
he mentioned that like the Hunger Games focused a lot on the glamour and the buildup, right? Uh, right. And then you know uh, the survivalist aspect was you know not as important. Whereas the whereas Battle Royale was primarily all about the survivalist. Oh, aspect. I see. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so the setup was very was very short. Right. You know, right. Uh, it was horrifying, and I think that led to the horror. Um, but it was told from it was a very similar story told from two very different perspectives. And it's that recounting, the retelling of those experience of that story, that makes the Hunger Games and uh, Battle Royale very fascinating watching. Are you um, are you a manga artist? Like that's a weird sort of question because like I don't know. Uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage that comes with it. I was um, well, what I what I'm fascinated by is I had no idea about the history of manga art and culture oh, yeah. and so on. It goes back years, years oh, yeah. and years, centuries. Yeah, yeah, centuries and. Um, I just wondered, you know, and I think that's also, you know, circling back to the question about, you know, what pulled you in, Yeah, you know, Marvel over DC and then this maturing and you yeah. know, Tank Girl and so on. And, and I'm just wondering how manga influenced your, because I think, I mean, oh, I, I'm no comic book uh, 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 specialist, but when I look at your artwork, it definitely is distinctive to yeah. me. Like it speaks to me on different levels, right? I'm basically... Um, I don't know how to put this nicely. I'm like a bottom feeder for like, for for culture <laughs> what does that mean what does that mean i was like the, the tilapia of, oh yeah uh, i just yeah. pick up the trashiest stuff <laughs> it's the worst i don't know um but i mean i would immerse myself into cartoons from all over and i was when i was a kid i would watch so many like giant robot cartoons and they all came from japan and you as you grow up and you you sort of remember and rediscover all these things and trace them back to their roots you find that they all have this common ancestry in being animated in Japan during the 70s and 80s. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's what l led into uh, anime and manga for me. Um, and then from there, I think there was a renaissance of like of manga in, I think, like late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And I was heavily influenced by it. I well, really I got to say, there was a time uh, before uh, Elizabeth mm -hmm. and I had kids where I saw manga everywhere. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. In manga, manga's influence. I mean, I was blown away yeah. read recently. Like, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. Absolutely. I yeah. think that people, like librarians, love manga. I mean, it gets young adults and uh, young adults and teens and into the libraries. I mean, that's really important. Um, kids love manga because it's very different sort of storytelling. Um girls love manga because superheroes seem to be very very state like slated towards boys and even yes, then it's not even so. yeah like lately marvel and dc have been not publishing towards boys but publishing towards men so like i guess like 30 and up you know um and it's just become a very different marketplace so yeah the only way really to get younger readers interested in comics now has been through anime and manga uh, which is it's kind of sad I mean, it points uh, at like disturbing trends within the readership, I think, of comics. So tell me, what do you mean by that? Do, like where where I where where my went, my mind went sort of immediately was the yeah. you know you said appealing to young boys and sorry for the sexist approach, but oh, yeah. the few times I flipped through manga, I've seemed to have come across some fairly sexually explicit stuff. Or yeah. I've uh, you know the the women look they've all oh, got yeah. wonderful breasts. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, this kind of yeah. stuff. Now, having said that, when I go back and look at the old Marvel stuff, I mm -hmm. mean, I think that kind of stereotypically, misogynistically, potentially... I think that's fair. Know, ...stuff, you know, yeah. I mean, whoa, that was quite a phrase. But, yeah, yeah I, I think it was... I, I think it's there, for sure. I think, yeah. No, it's definitely there. Uh, it's interesting because, like, manga sort of draws, like, very very distinct lines. Uh, so you have, uh, you have shonen, which is for boys, and then you have shoujo, which is for girls. And then along those lines, you have, like, you have the artists and the creators catering distinctly to their demographics. So they know who they're playing to. They're very, uh, they're very clever about it. Um, but yeah, I mean like in some manga, like in Shonen manga, you'll have like these women with like, you know, extraordinary breasts and you'll have like these heroes that are, you know, fairly like a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So sort of like, John yeah. Wayne, if he was yes in uh, Larry yeah. Flint's Paradise, kind of like uh, the Brady Bunch meets Frank oh, yeah. Miller. Yeah, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but then you also have like uh, you also have like these girls comics that are very they're very girly, uh, and that you know they're for girls. They're you yeah. know they're written 
that way. And they're so so very, when you say very girly, you mean pretty stereotypical. And, yeah, and yeah. in some ways, they're very feminine. I guess that's the best way to put it. I, it's I sound like a jerk when I say uh, they're four girls. No, um, I don't think so. Yeah. I, I think I know what you mean. I mean, I'm I'm with my you know uh -huh. Spencer and Victoria. You know, it's. I've really been intentional, Elizabeth, and I've been intentional about saying, you know, blue mm -hmm. is not necessarily for boys and yeah. pink is not necessarily for girls. And Absolutely. Even in the last week, you know, Victoria, five years old, dad, you know, one of my friends says, says it's silly to think that pink is for, or uh, pink could be worn by a boy. And mm -hmm. we had just been at some event where a guy, was adult, right. was wearing a pink dress shirt, yeah. you know, with a blue tie or something. And she made a comment about that. Well, I, yeah. A, I think that's brilliant that she's making those observations. But isn't it wild mm -hmm. that at such a young age, these stereotypes are, are yeah. already taking hold and taking shape? Like, it's kind of sad. I, I think, like, uh, it was the toy industry. Uh, they were they were making mm. like Lego for girls, right? Yes, uh, Friends Lego, I believe it's called. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. ridiculous. Uh, I, and obviously, it's a way to sell more toys, but no one really sees that. It's they just sort of like they just sort of see these distinctions between men and women, and right. it's more lines to cross. It's more obstacles to overcome. You know, there are more inhibitions to try and break through. Um, when you know, really, it's just about selling toys. Yes, um, and that's kind of the problem. I think uh, we're not really evolving the discussion we're sort of like trying to drive more wedges in between um and i guess that's really that's really the nature of it all hey why do you think um why do you think i remember growing up with comics and it was the artists yeah that were the big deal not yeah. the writers like nobody knew who the writers were <laughs> you, know, you waited for the next comic book because of the cover art yeah or it was going to be there was going to be a big release at the dragon lady or it was now immediately yeah. worth 10 bucks the moment you bought it off the shelf you know these kinds of things is that is that is there something behind <laughs> that or was that kind of contrived or no 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 i think it's i think it's fair um you know, comics are a visual medium, so without the without the art, it's you know, it's not there. It's just a you know, it's a play. But as I've been writing my own work, I have been finding that I have been more and more of a jerk to basically all the writers I've ever worked with. Um, I didn't really realize how much, how exhausting the work is. Uh, to be able to take your crazy abstract ideas and like this is what's going to happen in the story and da 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 and then try and distill it into like a plot and a script and then hand that off to an artist who then says I don't feel like drawing it it's, right it's really frustrating um, and it's really taxing especially I think the most frustrating part of it is that at the end a comic book script is not that long you know it's I ended up with a script that was about you know. I think it was like 5,000, maybe 7,500 well, words. You did a four and a half hour movie in two pages. Yeah. You know, Hamlet, for heaven's sake. So. It's incredibly brief. Huh? <laughs> That's right. You know. Very brief. Yeah. Uh, terse. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Tight, concise. Tight, concise. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, like the comic script I ended up with was like 5,000 to 7,500 7, words. And I had like a first year law student come to me and say that she had to like make her first year paper like 10,000 words minimum. And I'm sort of thinking like, oh my God, I am trying to create content for very well-read people and i suddenly realized this these pictures better be really damn good right because <laughs> right. they have to convey so much with the nuance you know and so i realized that the writers now have such a they have an uphill struggle from the day that they decide to become a comic book writer and then the artists have a lot on their plate because they have to give up so much time for the stories so both of them put in uh, an unbelievable amount of work for basically zero return. So um, it's an interesting place for you then, as uh, yeah. primarily as an artist, as kind of a reader of comics and historian almost, <laughs> you know, having been uh, out of necessity played such a huge part in your life. Yeah. Becoming the artist, the draw, the, the, the painter, the visual, you yeah. know, uh, uh, um, storyteller yeah. to now actually writing. Um, uh, wh where, where do your ideas come from? The writer hands you a script, you, you mm -hmm. do drawings to that. I'm always interested in the creative process for my own sake, but also for, for, I don't know, for posterity's sake, I suppose. I, but it's, it's so different for everyone. Yeah. I do what everyone does. I think when they're, when they're interested in writing and I, I keep notes on me uh, all the time. Like obviously uh, nowadays it's about what cell phone I buy. So the cell phone I buy has to be able to take notes, you know? And, right. Yeah. Are you a are you a voice note guy? I tried being a voice note yeah, guy for a while. Uh, it sort of worked for a bit. I was having fun with it, and then I found that I, I was just I was becoming more and more scatterbrained because I couldn't consolidate all the information. 
lately I've been finding that my notebooks have been really helping out a lot. So you've gone, hang on. So you went from, you went from print to digital back to sort of digital yeah. and print now. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Uh, I think it's to... wise. I mean, you also have this backup. Yeah. I find that, um, for me, it burns things into my memory you know, a lot better, say right? You send yourself an email about an idea for a to-do list at home in your inbox, but then you scribble down an idea with a little photo or something in the phone number. Like it lasts forever. Yeah, 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 it really does. It sounds kind of corny, but I think there's some truth in it. It's so easy for me now. Like after writing down the majority of my story in like longhand, it's easy for me now to actually go back into where I had left off with that story in my head. Like I know exactly where I am, and I have a little, you know, a little outline to help me along if I ever need, you know, right, jogging. Right, but right. For the most part, I, I pretty much know where, where things are going. And so I'm pretty, now I'm confident about my process. Uh, before, Which is great. Yeah, it's a long struggle. I think like the past five years has been all about learning about the process of being a writer as opposed to actually doing any real writing. Like I made some stories, but they're all crap. So I don't know. I, I was really worried after Shakespeare that that would be the high point. Is your hope, is your hope that, uh, you know, you're going to write a, a story that's going to become a, a full length feature film? Is that, I can't even just, think that far anymore. You can't even think that far ahead. I mean, in the, in, in the, in the interview about uh, foreign, uh, love, love, uh, yeah. love is a foreign language. You mentioned something about, you know, when you first were presented with the idea, it kind of scared you. Oh yeah. 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 It's, it's love is a foreign language scared me. Um, because like, is that um, what you mean by not being able to think that far ahead? Same sort of connection there? No, uh, I got lucky with Billy Smoke. Um, and I got lucky through Clay. And Clay was the writer on, is the writer on that story. And uh, B. Clay Moore uh, had an agent. And, you know, we got, the, we got the story in front of Hollywood. And they gave us money for optioning the story. And so it's like, I know that it can happen. And it's, you know, it's wonderful when it does. Because suddenly there's, you know, a money truck that comes up. Sure, and, yeah. 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 But I don't think I can I can think that way anymore in terms of like making stories because it becomes so intrusive into the process if realizing who my audience was was half the battle in defining what the story was going to be like and if I keep thinking that the story is going to be for Hollywood the more the story takes on this Hollywood atmosphere right, and right. the more false it feels because it feels as though I'm making the story just in order to earn a paycheck right which is you yeah, know, you're writing you're writing for the executive producer at that yeah, point exactly. not your audience yeah and that's, that's that's a bit troubling when you think about it yeah it's kind of de it debases the work um, and I know this is comic books that we're talking about but it, it's still it's still troubling it, it's funny because like that that same sincerity that you can have with like this you know un underground lowbrow culture where you know all the work is disposable it really is sensitive to dishonesty i think they can smell whether or not you're sincere about what it is that you're writing about you know i want to i want to pick up on that you know you've, you've referred to your work or, or comic book work artwork and, and stories as being disposable a couple right. of times and i think i might challenge that in the sense that yeah if if all truth is sort of storytelling, which I kind of believe it is yeah. on some level, and I know the postmodernists would probably disagree with me on that, but yeah. I don't really care uh, <laughs> at, at this point in this conversation. Yeah. Um, but but I, I look at my son and uh, my daughter, and I think of uh, the stories that have made sense to me over the years, the, the scriptural stories that I learned as a kid in church, yeah. the the comic book stories that I read, the, 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 the heroes, mm -hmm. you know, and you look at, you look at films today and, and you come out of a film like an Iron Man or a Thor or, yeah. you know, the comic book stuff that's happening. And, and even though it's pretty superficial and, and maybe not that substantive, you kind of go, you know what? I still think overall the underlying story that's being told, I like, Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's about, it's about love. It's about yeah. friendship. It's about standing up for people. It's oh, yeah. about saving lives. It's about changing the world to make it a better place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Of course you can criticize it from a racist and a sexist perspective. And I think we need that. <laughs> we need the feminist to critique it. And we need the postmodernist to critique yeah. it. And we need Chomsky to comment on it and all those <laughs> folks. But at the same time, I think there's something really valuable about those stories that I read Absolutely. as a kid. You know? And I agree with uh, that statement, too. I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, the stories that we're telling, don't, they don't lose their value. They, I think they simply describe the time and place. Like, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it was like, it was someone that uh, had said that, like, stories break down into being uh, either one genre of film or westerns. Huh. And when, <laughs> and I... I now come around to the opinion that that's completely accurate. Um, I was watching a lot of John Ford films. Oh yeah. Um, I'd watched, uh, I'd watched Rio Bravo. 
that was a uh, Howard do you, Hawks. Do you watch a lot of movies? Oh, I, yeah. Lately, I have. You have. In order to learn a lot more about storytelling, actually. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's my shortcut for reading books. <laughs> right, 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 right. I uh, saw the film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got it under my hat. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But yeah. Um, and I started realizing that, yeah, I mean, there are a ton of movies that are definitely just remade Westerns. I mean, Lethal Weapon seems to be like Rio Bravo. Oh, so many of these films are Westerns. Oh, they yeah. really are. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so... Um, I mean, when you sort of factor that in, then it's sort of like it's the setting that changes. It's the characters that change. It's the things that go into the characters that change a little bit. Their their goals don't change. They're still bringing justice to this frontier town. But how they go about it, what it is that they're fighting against, all these things that they're fighting for, you know, those are the elements of, you know, of society that sort of come in. Like Lethal Weapon is about, uh, I think they're in California and they're after drugs. In Rio Bravo, they're in the Old West and they are trying to... They're trying to do a lot of things in Rio mm-hmm. Bravo, mm-hmm. Uh, but it they sort of speak to our times. They speak they speak yeah. to when we live in. Yeah, I think so. Favorite favorite Western. Uh, really, uh, I really had a good time watching um, the man who shot Liberty Valance. That was great, uh, and I just saw that recently. I just it kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh my god, you know, uh, I. I'm a, I'm a little more cliche. I'm yeah. Clint Eastwood, uh, so oh, yeah. I'm a huge High Plains Drifter fan. Huge. Oh, that's great. Oh, and Outlaw Josie Wales. Oh, actually. Outlaw Josie Wales is almost, I think, maybe at the top of my list. I think so. Because I'm a directing, writing, everything, the characters. Yeah. You know, there's some weak moments in it, but it's just, you know. For anyway. the most part. It's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty powerful yeah. stuff. I just, as you were talking <laughs> about the Western and Lethal Weapon, I just, for some reason, went to a scene where Clint Eastwood says to, in High Plains Drifter, you know the story, right? Oh, he yeah. comes to paint the town red, and maybe this is the devil. We don't know who this guy is. <laughs> it's so and, good. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, it's awesome. God. But uh, he looks at him and he says, I don't think I like this town, Sheriff. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, speaking of justice, oh, so yeah. so just a second ago, we're gonna have to wrap it up in a minute yeah, absolutely. here. But just a second ago, you talked about change in a, in a variety of ways. Can comic yeah. books change the world? Uh, comic, I think comic books can communicate uh, the change that we would like to be. Oh, that sounds so idealistic. <laughs> now that sounds like you got a little bit of Gandhi in there. I think. Actually. Oh my God! I know. <laughs> <laughs> Become the change that you want to be, right? That's right. That's right. But it's, it's, I, think, I think it's true. I mean, if, if comic books are ideas, and if we're speaking to our ideals, sure. yep. then comic books can at least express and articulate those dreams that we have. And I think that's really important. I mean, novels do this, movies, everything in entertainment, in our culture, they speak to the dreams that that we have, or the ideals that we hold, or where we wish that we could be. And I don't think that's a terrible thing at all. No, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I think that's wonderful. I really think it's a great way to end it. And yeah, sure, we're both <laughs> going to be criticized for being idealistic, yeah. morons. <laughs> but you know what? I think you got to hold a balance between sort of a cynical, realistic edge and a hopeful, a hopeful idealism. And like yeah. you said earlier, art and being, it's got to be inspirational. It's got to be aspirational. And also, I mean, I have to know the audience I'm playing to. And I guess that audience is me. So I'll just hold on to that nugget too. And- <laughs> I won't worry about the comments that come afterwards. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Eric. Uh, Eric Kim from from uh, Toronto, uh, inkscratch.com. That's www. Do we even need to say that anymore? <laughs> www.ink, ink, scratch with a K, S K R A T C H.com. Check it out. You can see some of Eric's work there. Uh, Battle. What's a battle academy. Battle academy? Is oh, that, that was a. That's, that's a, coming out soon. No, no, it's a. It's a web strip that I. Oh, made okay. A long time ago. Uh, Excellent. Okay. What'll be coming out soon? Hopefully, is Billy Smoke. Billy and, Smoke. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the one I meant. Oh, that's okay. And uh, hopefully, in 2014, I'll be able to reveal a new project, the thing that I've been working on. Oh, very cool. So uh, here in the comic book capital of Ontario, <laughs> uh, and uh, signing off with Eric. Thanks again, there. Really, Thank really you, appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Bye.